Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Vitapod. For more info, go to vitapodworld.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Work Out the Doubt. I am your host, Dalvet Quince. Today's guest is a producer, composer, writer, CEO of the Recording Academy. This man is someone that I've been dying to talk to, someone that I know, but I really want you guys to get to know. I think he doesn't get the credit I know he deserves, and maybe in circles he does, but he's going to get all of the credit here today. My next guest, Mr. Harvey Mason Jr. Dovet, thank you. That was awful nice, huh? How are you, brother? I feel good. Now I'm, I'm nervous. I'm going to have to live up to this introduction. <laughs> I have to get some credit or something. I don't know. Nah, nah. I love it. Usually when I'm talking to my guests, I like to start from the beginning. And the beginning, when I when I read everything that I, I read about you, those are just notations, right? I think the the meat of it is going to come from you and your personal experience. Born in Boston. Mm-hmm. You want to know how I was born? How were you born? How did this that happen? This is important. <laughs> I was there. I just have to give you the context of, of, I think it's an overlay of a lot of things that I'm sure we're going to talk about, how right. I got to who I am, where how I accomplished what I did. Okay. I was born... My father's black, my mm-hmm. mom's white. I was born the first year that it was legal for there to be interracial sex. Miscegenation it's called, and you could not have sex between races in 1967, federally. So I was born in 1968, first, first year you could have an interracial child born legally. Uh, and my mom and dad were both musicians and they met in they college. Met in Berkeley. In Boston, yeah, yeah. And met in Berkeley, and both yeah. in music school, went on a date, had an accident. I'm the accident. Got married. Had me, and then we moved to LA. So, yes, I was born in Boston, but I wanted to make sure you had all the context. That changes everything. <laughs> that changes everything. By I'm the way. sure. I'm sure. Wait a second. So you were born right after, prior to you being born. Had you been born in '66, '67, '66? Illegal. It, it had been considered illegal, which meant what? That mom and dad would have went to jail. Really or? depends on state by state, but federally it was a law and at the time they were in boston so i'm sure they would have been punished in some capacity i don't know what that would have meant but that rule was overturned going into 1968 so i'm legal boston has a gets a bad rap in terms of racial divide did you experience any of that growing up not in boston because i moved to la when i was eight months old my folks kind of left there and we moved to la here in california i definitely experienced some because my folks Moved in with my grandparents in Glendale, Montrose, La Crescenta area. To be clear, your mom's parents. Yeah, my mom's parents, okay. the white side of my family. Yep. And so my dad and ultimately my sister and I were some of the few black people in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we experienced some crazy stuff. And uh, we can talk more about it if you want. But it was a wild time to grow up. It was in the 70s mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. And a lot of racial tension was going on. Um, but I'm extremely thankful and extremely mm-hmm. grateful for the way that I did grow up. I had great examples in my life and uh, a lot of people that I really looked up to and admired. So I'm sure we'll dig into it. Um, people that you admired, because I know firsthand some of the um, hardships with racial divide and being your dad who must have experienced something, he was obviously um, at a stage and age where he must have felt it more so than you as a little boy. Um, how did you navigate around those things and not build any resentment? And I say that before you answer that, because your disposition to me is that you're all you're a people person, no matter race, color, creed, sexuality. 
How do you how do you land there eventually, or what did it take to get there? I think it was coming directly from my parents. My dad was intense and he was crazy and he was passionate. He was a lot of times angry, but he was also very wise and someone I looked up to and somebody that taught me so many valuable lessons in life, the hard work and the dedication, the sacrifice. So from that side of my upbringing, I did get that, that edge. And then my mom on the other side was the most loving, caring, warm, supportive mom. And I think they really balanced each other out. And when my father would be telling me, get out and practice and shoot and play music and work hard and be the best. My mom was like, honey, I love you just how you are. The other thing that that I got that was consistent from both my parents was you can do anything you want. Wow. And that's a strange way to grow up. Wow. I think, I think it's very uncommon, but my dad told me all, always, he said, whatever you want to do, you can do it. There's no boundaries. And I think he saw that because he came from a very underprivileged family, right. New Jersey, Atlantic City, New Jersey, seven brothers and sisters. He was the eighth. He was the oldest, uh, didn't know his father, raised by his mom, mm -hmm. and had no business being successful. But he worked really hard. He mm -hmm. practiced. He dedicated his life to music. And he was an incredible musician, still is. And through that work and through the accomplishments, he built a life for himself and then ultimately for me and for generations to come, all solo and by himself. So I think he came from that mindset. He instilled that in me. And my mom also gave me a lot of confidence and a lot of comfort in being who I am and being mm. okay with whatever weird things I think I might have about my looks or my personality and, and owning it and, and being comfortable and confident. Confidence is the best thing we can give our kids. Love and confidence. I That's talk it. about it all the time. It's the best thing that we can give our I kids. I agree. It's and security. And security. And knowing that the love is unconditional yeah. and that they can be happy and do what they want without judgment from their parents. And because they're going to get it from everywhere else, you're going to be judged by everyone else. And if you can know that your parents, your dad, your mom, your family loves and supports you, right. that's a different kind of confidence. One of the, another thing that I think parents should do is show as much as they tell. I think oftentimes parents tell, be more like this, do like this, but they don't necessarily show the example yeah. of greatness. And in reading a little bit of your backstory, I imagine, take me into the room, I imagine your dad would show you what he did. You know, he's a drummer for one of the best jazz bands out mm -hmm. there for play, founding, founder of it, mm -hmm. bringing you around people like Herbie Hancock and Quincy Jones and so much that you wrote your first song at eight years old. Yeah, That influence had to be a magical time for you. It was crazy. I think at the time I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I wasn't able to appreciate it, but my dad did show, not tell. I saw him practice. I saw him wake up early and train. He worked out a ton. You would have loved him. He would run six miles and he'd push ups and sit ups. I'd be waking up to get dressed for fourth grade and he'd already gotten a workout and he's in his bedroom doing push ups. And so I just saw a drive. And I all every day of my life, I saw a dedication and a hustle and a grit and a, a real bias for accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just domesticated i was i ingested it right. into my upbringing is in my dna so right. yes i hung out with great musicians and my dad was working with michael jackson and you know barbara streisand and carol king all these cool people and quincy jones but to me i i wasn't as blown away as an impress and impressed by their celebrity as i was enamored with their talent and their ability to make cool things and do work at a high high level mm -hmm. and that's in keeping with my, what my dad always told me he said you can do anything but you have to do it 
well and you have to practice and you have to to perfect your craft. You can't just do something and throw it out there. I don't care if you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a trash collector, you're going to work at the store, wash windows, whatever you do, mm. you have to do it right and you have to do it better than everyone else. So when I saw a singer in the booth like mm. Michael Jackson, I said, oh man, that guy's doing it better than anybody. I love that and I respect that. And there was a premium placed on that by my father. And so I think to your point, he showed me not only by his own example, but by example of exposure and the people that I was traveling or seeing and bumping into, like excellence at every turn. How old were you when you first met Michael Jackson? Like physically in a room with him? Probably roughly. seven, eight, nine. Seven, eight or nine years old. You're seeing this guy work at the level he works, but you're also enamored by how hard your dad works, probably appreciative of the fact that these working artists take a liking to your dad as well. Right, it's you a correlation look, because a correlation. you see the work completely connect to the success and the connect to a relationship with somebody like Michael, who I know, I've seen the videos, I've seen the concerts, I know he's excellent. He wants to work with my dad. My dad works really hard. Light bulb. Light bulb. And that light bulb went off for you in many ways. Obviously you're doing the same work. You've elevated up to a even bigger level in the music industry. Um, it's just amazing to me how in many ways, when I think of you, I think of someone who had a double major, mm. you know, mm. a double major, both one from music and the other one from athleticism. Right. You know, a lot of people don't know you played in the 1988 NCAA finals, Yeah, went to Arizona, played with guys like Steve Kerr, shout out to the Warriors. Um, shout out to the, shout out to the world champs, world, world champs, <laughs> uh, shout out to those guys. In your mind, as you're there and you're on the floor, obviously some of dad's discipline was there with you by far. Did you see yourself, I'm going to be an NBA player, this is my life? Or did you know even then that you would pivot into music? My plan was to play basketball. Your you plan know, was to play basketball. I loved music. I was writing music my whole childhood. Even in college, I had a little keyboard and computer in my dorm. I would sit there in my underwear playing music. and. But my whole focus was basketball. Every day I was waking up, working out in the morning, working out before school, dribbling my ball to class, working out after school. Every moment of my life was dedicated to basketball. And it's actually started in ninth grade. Okay. And when I got to college, I thought I had a real shot because I went to Arizona, which at the time was a, a budding program. It was you know, coached by a man named Lute Olson, who ended up being a Hall of Fame coach. He recruited me and was a huge impact in my life. But the other thing that happened when I got to Arizona was very similar to walking in a studio with a Michael Jackson. I walked into a gym full of a bunch of Michael Jacksons or Michael Jordans, even better yet. You know, I walked in and I saw Steve Kerr. I was at study table my first week of school. I walked into the gym. We had to go read books. I walked in, and when I walked in, I looked out on the court, and I saw Steve shooting three-pointers, and one of the managers was rebounding for him. I watched him for about five minutes. He didn't miss a shot. Mm. I went into study table. We had a study table for 90 minutes. You know, get your tutoring. I came out of study tables. I'm walking back to my dorm. As I'm walking past the gym, he was still shooting. He was still shooting. And I ended up watching this guy for about another 15 minutes. I didn't want to, like, say, hey, Steve, you know, I'm the freshman, I'm in town, but I just stood in the back and I watched him for about 15 minutes. He might've missed one, maybe two shots in 15 minutes while I was watching him. And I thought to myself, I said, oh shoot, this is another level. This is a whole nother bar. And, you know, coming out of high school, I was you know all American. I led the state. I did all these great things, but I knew at that point there was another 
another layer to this. And so we talk a lot about, as you said, the exposure to expectations or things that might influence where you want to go in your life. Sure. That night in the gym influenced my life. Lute Olson influenced my life when mm-hmm. he used to yell at me in practice, like darn near berate me mm-hmm. because he knew I could be so much better than I was expecting myself to be. And he, I thought I was great, but he mm-hmm. said, you can be better. Mm. You, sit down, go on the bench. You're not, you're not, you're not there yet. Don't you appreciate that? No, you, you I hated it. You hated it. I hated it. But there's a I'm it thank sank God for the in. butt. It sank, it sank in. in. Yeah, okay, it sank in, and I said, he doesn't have any reason to do this other than he wants the best for me, and that's what I love. You about knew that earlier. I knew it late on. Okay. Not I was early about to on, say because it, it took was, you were offended. I was 18. Yeah. I was coming out of high school. I was averaging almost 40 points a game in high school. You know who I am? I'm 40 points a game in high school. Why are you giving me a hard time? I'm the man. Right. And I wasn't the man. Steve was the man. Sean Elliott was the man. Kenny Loft. These guys were better than I was. And those were eye-opening moments. Mm -hmm. And I've always operated with that in the back of my mind, always thinking that I can be better. I can evolve. I can expand. I can extend. And I think that was a case where it shaped my whole life being around those type of athletes and those type of teammates and that type of coach. The echo of dad's voice, work hard, is starting now to instill at 18 because now coach is saying the same thing. Right. You're seeing it firsthand in the players, right. right? It's starting to affect you now where later on you had to appreciate this is what, my father had a phrase, Life's gonna bite you in the ass. You're gonna have to say ouch, and then you're gonna understand what I mean. <laughs> like that's what he said to me. I'm like, because I'm young, like you don't know what you're talking about. That or not. And it wasn't until I went through something and got bit, it, and got bit, that I was like, oh, that's what you meant. So right. experience is our best teacher. Really is. And luckily, if you're fortunate, you have somebody giving you some insight so that you don't have to continue to get bit. Sure. And they can say, hey, watch out, this thing's gonna bite you. Right. But if you do X, Y, Z, you can avoid this bite. So sometimes, yes, it's good to get bit, but mm-hmm. it's also good to have people like my dad, like my teammates, like Coach Olson, Pity. next level, like Clive Davis, people that are giving me gems, giving me gifts in life to keep me out of the wrong situations. So why not then with all these gems around you, go into the NBA? What happened there? It sounds like a, a horrible excuse, but my senior year, 17 games in, I believe it was one game past the midway point. I tore my ACL in my knee, and that ended my college career. You could I get knew it was fixed. an injury involved. Yeah, you could get it fixed. But at that point, it was a t- kind of a year and a half recovery, and it was my senior year. I didn't have a chance to prove myself. And I might have been able to go try and play overseas or something, but probably wasn't very likely with that type of a knee injury. So had the surgery, sulked around for a good little bit, probably six months, trying to figure out my life because – Honestly, my, everything had been pointing in my life and career to the NBA. Yeah. All my effort, all my energy, all the practice, all the sacrifice. Where my friends were out partying in high school, going to the beach, I was in the gym. Even in college, while I was seeing some of the players that might have had more talent than me, I was working, trying mm-hmm. to trying to catch up, trying to pass them. And so then, when I hurt my knee, it was it was definitely a moment for me to like figure out what was happening in my life and what was going to be next. And so that well, period took six months. What was next? After music. Music. I came back into music. I'd always been around music, like I said. I was always had a keyboard in my room. Mm-hmm. And so when I had hurt my knee, I finished school. I started writing a ton of music just as almost therapy or just something to 
take my mind off of the fact that I was not going to play basketball. I couldn't believe it. And all my buddies were playing. Right. You know, my teammates were calling me back saying, yo, I got my first paycheck or I'm on this team. We just played over here. And you were crushed. And I was crushed. <laughs> so all I did was make music. Right. And at that point, it wasn't strategic. It wasn't like, oh, this is a great pivot for me. I don't even know what pivot meant other than what coach told me to pivot away from the back, you know, the baseline. Right. But, I just saw it as something that I love to do, something that I had a talent for, something that I found early success in that gave me satisfaction and joy. So I started writing music and jumping ahead a couple months, uh, my girlfriend at the time was working at an ad agency hmm. and they needed music for a bus commercial. Okay. And so she said, hey, they'll pay you $1,500 if you pay, make this little piece of music for us, bus commercial. I said, that's easy. I write songs all, you know, my whole life. It's 30 seconds long. I'll write that in five minutes. So I wrote a little jingle. For Coca-Cola? No, it was for a bus. For a bus commercial. I was trying to do a tie-in to Tyrese, but go ahead. No, no. It was um, for the local transit department. Okay. In Tucson, Arizona. Okay. So I gave it to my wife or my girlfriend, and she took it back to work. And they said, we love it. It's great. Slid me a $1,500 check. I was like, oh, okay. That was really easy. And it was really fun. I get to write music. And. So I started a company that did jingle business and we were doing, mm. you know, burger stands and break stores and Coca-Cola ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, toy companies. And we really started doing a lot of jingles, but it was at that point, the pivot that we talked about right. at that point, I realized, I say, I know I don't want to do jingles my whole life. Mm-hmm. I love music. This is a great opportunity for me to make some money. I was fresh out of college. I didn't have any other job or other talents other than ball and music. Mm-hmm. So I used my talents and music to make these jingles. And I made, you know, 1500 here, three grand there, a couple grand here, stacked up enough money to buy equipment, which is what I spent all my money on. And fortunately, my girlfriend, who ultimately became my wife, allowed me to spend all my money on buying equipment. Mm-hmm. She was amazing. She supported mm-hmm. my, my dreams and my goals. I spent every dollar on gear. I kept working on music. You know, I was doing my jingles, mm-hmm. but I said, now I got to make these records sound the way that they need to, to mm. sound. And I invested in it. And that's the next step. I love that. I love the part where you saw that your talent wasn't enough, right? And in order for you to keep dribbling or hitting those three-pointers like Steve did and you in awe of him, you had to invest in you. You had to invest in the work. You could have took that money and celebrated, bought you know, the rims on the car, couple and, necklaces, and couple necklaces <laughs> and stun around the neighborhood, yeah. have two, three girls, but you, yeah. the discipline kicked in again. Did. The discipline said, you know what, let me put into this and then grow from that. Um, but you got to realize in my whole life, it had been a constant example from seeing my dad work. That's exactly To seeing right. my teammates work, to watching Steve, to watching Sean in the gym, to having my coach tell me you have to work. It doesn't matter about talent. It doesn't matter about luck. It matters about the work and the persistence and the consistency of the right. work, so. And that work has led you into a very well-round career in the music industry. And I say well and round on purpose because you could be a producer and just produce music for artists. You could be a songwriter and collect those checks and be the creative. But you're more than that. You decided to get into movies and films and compose original music. How does a producer go into that? Tell me that story. That was intentional, definitely. But it was also in keeping with my personality. I'm always looking for challenges. And I love 
diversity. I love doing different things. I get bored easily. Yeah, you're and, like me. <laughs> and I want more. Right, and, right. And that's probably why you've done so well in your job in fitness and in health yeah. and inspiring people. You want to push. You want to push the boundaries. And, what's the level yeah, up? What's the level up? Yeah. And so as a music producer, songwriter, as you said, I did that. I wrote a bunch of great records. I worked with a ton of amazing artists and produced so many, so many songs. And I was always thinking, how can I build it into something else besides just that? So started a publishing company, signed other writers so I could give them an opportunity to write and produce songs like I had. Mm. Started a label, signed artists, um, and then started doing film and TV work because that was the next evolution for me of where I wanted to take my company. I saw the, sh the shift and the transformation of the music ecosystem as far as the pay structure and the royalty structure was streaming. At first it was Napster. Napster mm. came out and we were selling CDs and people were getting paid fairly. And then we all of a sudden saw as a songwriter or a producer, you might not get a check. You could have a song that you gave to a huge artist that would come out and be playing everywhere. People would have it in their cars on Napster, downloading it, sharing it, and you get nothing. Nothing, zero. And as you're creative, you're listening to your work right. and you wouldn't get a dime. Out of dime. And a lot of times at that point, the labels were in the same position. They were like, well, we can't pay you because we didn't get any money for this. It's so unregulated that people are just sharing the music. So at that point, I saw and made a conscious decision to try and diversify into some other things, one of them being film and TV music. And so uh, I think this is probably 2005 or six. Okay. And I started doing film music. First big project I did was Dream Girls. And that was a two year project. But I saw the correlation between making cool art and getting you know having the ability to make a living again because right. during the earlier stages of that time period in music as i said people were struggling they sure. were trying to figure out how to monetize their music so film for me was a great opportunity the other thing i loved even more than that because i had made good money and had good success but what i really loved about the film space was the opportunity to do different things, different sounds. I wasn't just doing R&B and pop records because I'd done thousands of those things. Right. You know how many records we did in right. that time period? <laughs> thousands. <laughs> and so when I got a chance to work on films and Dream Girls, I said, I'll make this sound like an old Motown song or make this sound like the blues or do a rock song or a country song. I said, this took me back to my jingle days there when you, you could do everything. There you go. And just have that flexibility and, and be a chameleon and be able to change and push and pull with different kinds of sounds. Sounds, and I love that. So you get an opportunity to go back to the jingle days. You get an opportunity to uh, venture out outside of what was typical. You did a lot of R&B songs. You did, you know, your resume is unbelievable. I mean, you've worked with John Legend, Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin. I can go on and on and on. And, and on. the crazy full circle moment was working with Michael Jackson on his last record, right? After having met him as a kid. Wow. And spending the last 18 months making a record with him was Isn't that crazy? Yeah, was Listen crazy. to what you're saying. You're saying, I'm a little kid, seven, eight, or nine, watching my dad work with this icon mm -hmm. in the studio in the booth, watching his work ethic, just to fast forward on his last album, I'm now working with him. But remember how we talked about the attraction or the connection between my dad and Michael and Michael wanting to work with my dad because he was a hard worker. That immediately came to mind when I got the chance to work with Michael. I said, wow, isn't this crazy? What I got from my dad and what I, the lessons I learned as a kid have positioned me to be able to do something like this and to be able to be around artists like Michael Jackson that now want to work with me because of what I did in my upbringing or what I learned from other people. So it definitely was a weird 
an interesting, fun moment. Was it a goosebump moment? Was it a? It wasn't because at that point I was in the throes of like you know working with all these different people, and at that point, what I saw, and this is a little bit of a detour, but what I saw as a, a direct advantage for me as a producer and songwriter was the ability to make great, legendary voices perform their best and give mm. their best vocal performance and give them their best records. And so I had to mentally prepare myself before any of these sessions or interactions for that matter to make sure that I had a complete grasp on what I needed to do. And I couldn't get pulled off of that by acknowledging that this is Michael Jackson or this is the guy that I idolized when I was seven when I first met him. You can be distracted by that. No, you can't. And if you do, you've lost the connection with them, the touch with them, and you've lost the ability to be creative with them on a level, on, a, on an equal and peer-to-peer -peer level. Mm -hmm. And I've seen so many people do it. They get impressed and they get excited and they get mm -hmm. in this studio, they start pushing the faders and they, they can't even communicate through the booth right. to the artist because they're in they're awe. They're enamored, they're yeah, enamored. Yeah, and they're like, oh, it's Michael Jackson or it's Whitney Houston. And as much as I feel that and I believe it, mm -hmm. I think You're not growing, distracted by it. I'm not. And I think growing up with my father and growing up in the basketball world, working and playing with the best athletes and watching my dad work with the best musicians, I got comfortable with it. And I was able to interact with them on a level that might have been different had I not had those experiences. You leave uh, the jingle space. You go into working with the likes of Roddy Jerkins. Um spend a little bit of time with him, a few years. Yep, two years. Two years. You leave there, you go into, is it Underdogs? Is yeah, it underdogs. underdogs. Yeah, it was myself and one other, and one other partner, and then we ended up signing a bunch of writers and producers to that company and had a great run. And that run was what, another that two, was, three no, years? No, that was about 10 years. About 10 years. Yeah. This part, though, the graduation after the 10 years, that Harvey Mason Jr., now you're working with yourself. Yeah. You're doing you're you're your yeah. own captain of your own ship. Yeah. You have enough experience under your belt. You start working in the film industry. I want to talk a little bit about that live experience. And when I say live experience, I was in awe with the fact that NBC decided to do Jesus Christ Superstar live. <laughs> Wiz live, mm -hmm. right? It's one thing to go to Broadway in New York or any other place where Broadway plays and you're watching a play. But to have that experience on camera and working in that realm, how difficult, exciting, frustrating, <laughs> unbelievable, and grateful are you all in one? I mean, doing those shows, every every different facet of my career has been a challenge. Whether you're making a record in a studio and you're dealing with a diva that's in the on the other side of the glass, or you're trying to put up a TV show and a film, or you're doing a, a live musical, they all have the craziest challenges. And as a producer, that's really my job. You've talked to some great producers on your show. You, you spoke to one of the best to ever do it, Dre. I think he was one of the best managers of things, of crisis, of 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 you have to try and manage things on a on a minute by minute basis and make decisions and minimize compromise mm. and i think that's something that i learned from producers like dre or others that i looked up to and it, it carried and served me well when i'm doing these live tv shows because it's really managing and minimizing compromise because every decision you're like okay am i going to get a great vocal 
and spend another 45 minutes? Or am I going to use what I have now and move on to something else that really needs to be done? Or am I going to make this edit that shortens this, but it's going to make the act better, but it's going to cut down on the music. All the decisions you're making and you're doing it in real time for a live thing is really fortunately due to the training that I've had in my whole life where sure. you're trying to minimize the amount of times you're compromising something. And that's kind of a theme for me in art because it's hard when you're making music or when you're painting or when you're sure. acting, sure. you're making compromises and the, the least amount of compromise to me wins. If you can do what's truest for you, mm -hmm. what you're feeling and what you believe in, what's in your soul, what's in your creative heart, whatever you want to call it. If you can get that out through your fingers or your ears or your voice, or whatever, in its purest form, then I think you win. I think the amount of times you have to alter or detour or compromise, it becomes less wholesome, less personal. And maybe you'll do something cool, maybe you won't. But I don't think it wins as much as the real compromise-free art. Less wholesome, less personal. It's a skill set. It's a personality, I feel, uh, that a person has to have when you're a conductor and you're conducting these various instruments. Mm -hmm. And you have to think on the fly sometimes. Big time. When you're on the court and you have a plan, the play is there, right. but then the court gives you something different, you have to know to switch yeah. and, and see everything. Are those skill sets what led you into becoming first the interim um, recording academy uh, uh, president? CEO, yeah. And then now CEO? Would you spill that into that as well? Because you're able to navigate and handle a tree, but really see the forest. Right, right. Well, I think the common thread there is teamwork and collaboration. Okay. I think in my life since I was a kid in high school, being part of a team is something that I've always loved. I, and you, you come from a similar background, just being around sports and the guys or the girls or whoever it is being a part of a group yeah. and winning together and accomplishing things together is, is my favorite thing. I love it. So when I was in high school playing, loved it. College, I had my best friends playing with me and riding together for basically like 20 hours a day, eat, sleep and breathe together with my best friends for four years. And when I got done playing, I missed that. I said, Working sucks You're <laughs> by yourself. Right. I like, want that camaraderie. Right. That's what makes it right. worth and, the while. And so that's why I started the underdogs with, with my partner. And we ended up bringing in other songwriters and producers so we could have that feel that of team. a team. Yeah. yeah. And all creating together. I get it. So we did that for many years. And then I, I saw the Academy as a place where I could have another family because the Academy is misunderstood by many, but what it really does is it, lifts up the entire music environment, the ecosystem, and provides opportunity for music people. Mm -hmm. And I saw that as a another group of people that I could get together with and hopefully do good. And mm -hmm. so when you talk about me becoming the interim president and CEO, I approached it as number one, again, another evolution of me as a person, as a musician, as a as a human, mm -hmm. and trying to enter into some new challenge that was really interesting. But secondarily, I saw it as an opportunity to give back and help because I had had a great career. I still think I'm continuing to have a great career and I have a lot more to give and to, uh, further to go. But the Academy was a chance for me to help other people who maybe were just getting started or maybe had not had the success that I had had. And so as interim president, I saw the ability to build 
the academy or, or think of it as a family and as a team and use all of our resources for good. And I really wasn't going to continue as the CEO. They asked me a couple of times and I said, no, I got to get back in the studio. I got to make my music. But then I realized that the family that I was a part of at the academy had the potential to do so much work. And all the things I thought I would be able to do by myself sitting in the studio or making projects that I thought might change the world or influence somebody's mood or day or life, I can do that at the academy times a thousand because of all the people that we can reach and all the artists and creators that I can interact with and hopefully provide them a platform to do what they do. It's a multiplying effect. Whatever I can do by myself, you times that by a hundred thousand by the people that I can either help or reach or collaborate with or partner with at the Academy. And so ultimately that was why I, I decided to do that. So now you are the CEO and president of the Academy, the Recording Academy, which organizes and hosts the Grammys. Mm -hmm. Most people, laymen like myself, who are not in the music industry, we feel that that's all you do. Right. What else, if you could educate everyone listening, what else is your responsibilities or the responsibility of the Recording Academy? It's a super simple formula. The Academy is a not-for-profit organization that is, our only goal is to serve music people. And so we have our TV show. The mm -hmm. show was originated because we thought, this is 65 years ago, they thought if we have a big show, we can showcase all this cool music and these artists and writers that are making music that maybe people aren't exposed to. Mm. So they said, let's make a show. They started the show. They would use different genres, different artists and, and say, oh, this is cool. Oh, that's cool. Everybody look at our music. And it was a way to grow the music industry. Over the years, we figured out how to monetize that show. And we do contracts. Our contract right now is with CBS Viacom. Mm -hmm. We get $50 million a year for the show. Okay. The money comes in the door and we push it back out in the industry. We do that in three ways. First, Music Cares. It's our safety net for music people. It's, you know, covers music people, not just members, anybody if you're in the music business and you have a car crash or your instrument insurance. gets broken. It's not necessary insurance. It's kind of like insurance. It's a safety net. Okay. If you have a medical bill, you can't pay. You lost a gig, you can't pay your rent. Drug addiction, mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. This is what Music Cares does. Last year, we gave $30 million to music people who just needed help. And we do that, again, with a mindset of if we take care of music people, music people can make music and create their art and think what that does to society, to the world. It heals the world. It changes everything. Yeah. So that's Music Cares. Then our advocacy. That's our team in D.C. We have office. We have staff. We have people all around the country fighting for the rights of creators, fighting for the rights of people like you. Now you have intellectual property with this podcast or a song or you write a, a, a record or a musical how is that treated legally, internationally, nationally? How do you monetize that? How do we get remunerated for the work that we do? And that's something that we do through the, the, our advocacy rent division. And we spend millions of dollars to do that. Wow. So again, helping music people. I'll get my producer to listen to that right now as you say that, but go ahead. Right. And then the final thing is through the museum, education and preservation of music. So providing instruments, providing teachers, underserved communities. Like think if, if I didn't get an instrument when I was young or another producer or songwriter didn't get an instrument in their schools when they were young, how that affects the, the ecosystem, the world, the, the music business. I don't create one song because I never got exposed to music. That song doesn't affect somebody. That doesn't change somebody's mind, somebody's heart. Again, ripples out. So we are providing music education, music preservation for people so they know what's going on around music. And that's the third bucket of ways that the Academy is operating. So that's what we really do. The show is one night. 
Right. That other stuff is 365 days a year. Nonstop. Yeah. And first of all, they're lucky to have you. They have you because you're looking at it from the angle of a writer, the angle of a composer. Totally. Right. So your eyes are totally different. Able to see the experience firsthand. Yeah. Or one of the things you're concerned about is I think recently I, I read somewhere how writers will finally get an award presented to them. Yeah. That's something that you helped facilitate. Yeah. And tell me more about that. Well, this year we will have a songwriter of the year uh, award. Which songwriter never of the year has never yeah. happened before. No, ever. never In the history had. of 60 since 65, 65 years. years. <laughs> yeah. It's impressive. Yeah. We've had a producer of the year. We have best new artist of the year. We have record of the year, song of the year, all those. But the songwriters were always marginalized a little bit and kept in the background, but they're indispensable. They're, you can't have an artist's career without a song. I'd be singing nothing. So Why did you so, fight for that, Harvey? Because I'm a songwriter. Right. And because also I think there's an, a, a, a lack of value placed around songwriting right now. If you look at some of the deals and some of the agreements with different platforms and how songwriters are being paid royalties, how publishers are being compensated, they're downplaying the song. And I think, you know, Artists are ultra important. Hmm. Producers, super important. Musicians, incredibly important. But so are songwriters. So I think uh, being a songwriter and knowing the plight of people like me, but not necessarily me because I feel like I've been very fortunate, but people that are coming into the industry or people that are just starting out writing, we've got to protect that craft and enable them to make a living. So Songwriter of the Year is something I'm proud of. We're going to shine a light on the art form. We're going to shine a light on some great songwriters. That's amazing. And, you know... it sounds like you guys care as much about the underserved in your position in various categories, whether like you spoke to mental health or songwriters not getting their acknowledgement. Um, is that everything? Did we cover all the bases with what the Recording Academy does? Or does anything else come to mind? There's a ton of other things that the Academy does. I don't want to go too deep into the weeds for, sure. for this group, but I, I mean... Sure. One of the biggest pushes right now for us is diversity and equity and inclusion actually across the board. You know, when you look at the music kind of system and the, the game that's being played right now around music, the consumption, who's who's making it, who's listening to it, it's very specific. R&B music is very popular. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop music is very popular. Black music and black genres are the driving force in music 100%. right now. So 35% of music that is consumed and created is black music. Mm-hmm. And so... Of course, in my job, I have to be aware of all genres and treat them all equally. But I think there is some ground to be made up around certain genres. And it's not just black music. There's others as well. But trying to make sure that music is represented equally and fairly and uh, in a way that reflects what's going on in our society as far as music tastes and music influence and cultural influence is something that uh, I'm really trying to make sure we're consistent on across the board. So we talked about other things the Academy does, partnerships with um, you know other organizations like GLAD or Color of Change or sure. Women's in the Mix Studies. We're the first organization to have an inclusion writer for all of our TV shows, guaranteeing certain criteria are met in front of the camera and behind the camera. Those are things that you know that's amazing, very important to us. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's very that's unique. We're the first first show to do it. That's amazing. Um, You've done, the, we've talked a little bit about the live shows. We talked about The Wiz. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Jesus Christ Superstar. Congratulations, you have another one coming up with John Legend. Yep. 
which is the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, that one's not going to be live. That's going to be a, a scripted feature. Okay, will be scripted. At Universal, okay. yeah. Okay. And okay. it's going to be a remake of the original Phantom of the Opera, but modernized. And new music, new characters, new a little bit new plot, but some of the similar themes. Have you guys already started digging into that a little bit? Or, We're into, or? yeah, the script is coming along. We've got some great stuff. I'm excited to work with John on that. You know, he's crazy, crazy talent. You, hey, you guys worked together on Jesus Christ Superstar. We did, yeah. We yeah. had, uh, John was Jesus. Can you imagine? <laughs> John the Baptist was Jesus. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother that's conversation. Deep. Yeah, deep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, listen, I, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me and kind of going through your journey. And I'm, I'm most impressed by not only your extensive career, but I think more so by the way your personality and who you are as a human being allows you to bring out the best in people, mm. recognize it, polish it. Knowing when to stop is sometimes the best way to go. Yeah, right. It's true. When you're dealing with a personality, but also knowing when to pick things back up. So I commend you for that. Thank you. I, I have to say this because we worked out all the time. By the way, this is how we met. A lot of people yeah. don't know that a good friend of ours introduced us and getting right, getting right. Yeah, get, right. You know, you, and know. you were the best. I said, Thank I, you. I'm dying to work out with this guy. Every, I was like, <laughs> boy, when are we working out again? <laughs> I loved it. We had so much fun. But you have a heart and a spirit about you that most people don't have, and it makes you want to be better. And that's, I think, probably the reason that this podcast is so successful. And I think we have that in common because. My goal, as I said in the studio, was always to try and bring the best out of my, yeah. my artists. And yeah. I think they respect me for it the way that I respect you for the way you always push. and You always want the best for the people you're working with. So I sense that early in you. I appreciate that. You have no idea how much that means to me, especially right now in this moment as, as we grow this. You know, mm. you spend a lot of quality time with individuals and working on amazing, memorable projects. Looking this hallway. Dream girls. I could go on and on and on. Like I'm so impressed by by your hard work and what you've given the world. Has there been a time in your life, and I always ask my guests this as as I'm going, has there been a time in your life where you had to work out the doubt? Where you had a level of success? You watched something fall down and you had to rise out of it. That's the easiest question you've asked me all day because my life is a constant journey of working out doubts. And that's where I operate from. And I don't know if that's healthy or bad, but I will tell you my natural disposition is to want to fight and want to be better because I always fear like I'm not going to be good enough at something. I always am worried the song I'm creating is not going to be accepted. And when you're making art, it's very personal. Mm -hmm. And that amount of rejection or uh, not not someone not accepting your music or your art or your hard work is painful as as an artist, and I'm sure you felt it. Mm -hmm. So for me, the doubt is always there mm. in everything I do. In my training, when I'm working out, I'm thinking, oh, I'm slipping, I'm getting weaker, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doubting whether I'm going to be able to make these next five reps. Mm -hmm. In my music, I'm thinking there's somebody younger, somebody new, somebody fresh that's coming that's going to make my music irrelevant. People are going to hear my music and think it doesn't sound good anymore. Mm -hmm. When I'm making movies, I'm like, are people going to, is this going to resonate with with somebody? And I'm always critique. doubting it, right? And, and for me, something that has always pushed me is wanting to feel like I was making a difference. Mm -hmm. And that sounds corny, I know. But everything I've done in my life, I've always taken that kind of personal pride in making sure when I'm done, 
was it the best it could be? And that's a doubt you always have, or I always have, mm -hmm. because, and I talked about that, the compromises that go into doing things that I do, at least. I always want it to be the best. I'm never sure that it is. I'm always worried that it's not. I'm always thinking, oh, when I went to sleep last night, I should have stayed up for another hour. I should have spent the, the time, additional time needed to make that even better. And so the doubt is always when do you something believe, I address. Though, at some point, looking at the accolades on the wall, looking at your career, looking at your responsibilities, I know you're always in that space of helping others, which helps you. At some point, you got to celebrate this was pretty damn good. When do you believe it? When other people say it? Or do you just wake up and just own it at some point? I don't know. I'll tell you when I get there. But I think for me, I don't discount my successes. I never downplay them. I never think it's not a big deal because it is. It's a big deal. Anything that happens good in our lives, whether it's that you know crap on the walls or an award or a pat on the back, they're all success stories. And I take them all in and I love them and it mean a lot to me. But I don't I don't focus on that and I don't think about where am I going to get my next success. I think about uh, am I doing the right things? Am I making the highest quality that I can make? Am I making things that will make people proud, things that will make people happy? I think a lot about my teammates, which sounds weird, but I think about the group of guys I came up playing basketball with and I think, you know, if I, if I were to not be here tomorrow, if I were to pass away or something happened, would they have been proud of what I did in my life? You know, I think about my coach. I think about my father and my kids. And if I wasn't around, would they think that I was valuable and, right. and my efforts meant something? So those are the things that I tend to focus on. But I absolutely positively know I'm fortunate. I know that I've had some really cool things happen in my life and some experiences that are still mind blowing to, to even me. And I never take that for granted, but I want to make sure that this stuff matters. Well, you are valuable. You Thank are needed. You. And Thank most importantly, you. you're appreciated. Your hard work is it echoes. And I think oftentimes you, you know, you don't necessarily know where a sound may come from or who created that music, but mm -hmm. we see you and we recognize you and I appreciate your time. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Good stuff. Good stuff.